Okay, good morning everyone. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you try to cross the street and suddenly it's like gravity has lessened and you can't get a grip on the road and you're just, no matter how hard you try, it's like slow motion, you can't get across the road and then you look and there's a truck or something coming. Usually you wake up in time. I'm kind of having one of those days where I feel like no matter how hard I'm running, just not getting where I need to go. So forgive me for being a few minutes late. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, what's that? Surrender. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't remember what movie it's from. Probably not a good one. But there's this line where the main character is screaming, Serenity now. <laughs> and I, I often think of that. Well, welcome back to our class on Chemnitz. By roundabout introduction to be sure. We are going to uh, be picking up on page 47. And again, Chemnitz has laid for us the foundation of the scriptures, the scriptures as God's word, as that chief authority in the church from which all other authorities derive their authority. And then he's gone through and identified six different lochi for how the office bearer, the pastor, is to use scripture within his pastoral office. And we're going to be picking up on the fourth over on page 47. Before we do, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, on page 47, under that fourth point, Let's read what Chemnitz has to say, and I'm going to share with you some of the scriptures he cites, simply so that we don't lose track of the underpinnings of these statements he is making. Fourth, let a faithful minister of the word consider that he has been set by God as a watchman and lookout for the church, so that when he notices that some of his sheep have gone aside from the way of the righteous, and have turned aside into the way of sinners, he be neither a sleeping and blind watchman, nor a dumb dog. Well, unfortunately, there were many many people in the pastoral office who fit this description. I hope not to be one of them. Isaiah 56.10 reads this way, His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Hmm. So the priesthood and the pastoral office can be a haven for lazy men, and it can be a haven for people pleasers who mistake the duties of the office with simply currying favor of those whom they serve. So we see here, Chemnitz draw to our minds from the scriptures that 
Pastors have a job to do, and it's not always a popular job. Because a watchman crying out in regard to danger or a dog barking um, is not what people want to hear when people just want to hear, hear, you know, I just want to hear good things. I just want to hear nice things. just want to be comforted. Uh, But that's, unfortunately, Satan won't allow that. And so it's incumbent upon the pastor to be able to be a watchman and, when necessary, a barking dog. I like that. Okay, next. Nor ought he provide soft pillows (laughs) for the impious. I don't know. I don't know what translation Kenneth is working with. I didn't have too much time to track it down. Here's, Here's the larger sense of this. From Ezekiel, my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace when there is no peace. So this is a grave temptation for pastors of all times and places to simply proclaim nothing but good news to everyone. And in fact, this is one of the great ironies. The book of Jeremiah is, of all of them, most explicit on this point, that in the days of the prophets, what they're up against is that God is saying, and it's evident to the prophet's own eyes, that the people are in violation of the covenant of God and are trampling his word left and right. So Yahweh, through the prophets, the prophets seeing this and of their own accord, guided by that word of God, by that covenant of God, are proclaiming the disaster that's going to come on the people on account of their sin. What are the false prophets of this era doing? No, 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 you've got the sacrifices. Just offer your sacrifices and God forgives you. Don't worry. Are you circumcised? Remember your circumcision. Peace, peace to all who would continue in the house of Yahweh. Don't worry about it and don't listen to these judgmental, legalistic, firebrand pastors or prophets who are decreeing doom and woe. All right. So here you can see that they say peace, peace when there is no peace. Ezekiel uh, identifies that. Um, Jeremiah does. Again, it's a huge theme in Jeremiah's text. Okay, a little bit further with Chemnitz. But let him cry out against sins with a loud voice. Isaiah 58.1 Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Kenwitz continues, And let him be instant in prayer. I love that phrase. So often steadfast in prayer. Here, instant in prayer. And exhortations. Threats and rebukes in all patience and teaching, both in season and in a spirit of gentleness, and also out of season with severe rebukes. Okay, interesting, because you actually have some pastoral care here. I don't want to overread it, but you do have some 
pastoral care that in season um, and in a spirit of gentleness, but also out of season with severe rebukes. So again, maybe the biggest mistake of our current age in this vein is that we want pastors to be nice and we want pastors to be relatable. And very frequently, those are the categories by which we judge them. Not, is what they say true? (laughs) Not, is, do they rebuke with the full sternness and comfort with the full sweetness? Do they decree faithfully the counsel of God? Uh, No, we're not interested in that. We want them to be nice. We want them to be relatable and personable. We want them to be funny and tell good jokes from the pulpit. So you can see how far astray in a field we've gone. And again, I don't mean we, the people sitting in the room. I'm fairly certain I'm preaching to the choir here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But uh, when you look at the pastoral office broadly in America, and, pe- and when people tell you, hey, I've got a wonderful pastor. He's so relatable. He's so knowledgeable. He's so funny. He's so kind and nice. These are the things you hear. And those things in and of themselves, great as they may be, aren't in the first tier of what's required of the pastoral office, and in some cases aren't required at all. Okay, hand back here was first, and then we'll get the hand up here. Are we running a... Oh, it's right here. Oh, my. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. Here, I'm going to hand this off, off camera. There you go. That way no one can dox themselves. Be recognized by the facial recognition software. Be put in Zuckerberg's camp where you have to build iPhones. Okay, why don't you just, uh, I'll do my best to re- just recount it while they're getting that together, um, please. Well, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Such a great point, Gordon. Yeah, yeah such a great insight. Edit out. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that's not nice. Yeah, we yeah, so it wasn't nice. Yeah, right. Right. So loving, he's kind, he's not nice. Yeah. For the sake of those online, the point that's that's so well spoken is that God in the scriptures, Christ in the scriptures don't fit this description. They're not always nice or personable or winsome or jolly or any of these other things that uh, we seem to think. And don't we hear this all the time? My Jesus would never say that. My Jesus would never do that. Um, The God I believe in would never do such a thing or think such a thing or say such a thing. Last week or two weeks ago, I forget when, maybe even was in a different class, um, about pastors being apolitical mm-hmm. and the fact that it, when you get down to it, a lot of what is political is also uh, moral, right? Moral, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. so a pastor should, within his office, speak to what's moral which that's going to encroach into the realm that we typically think of as political. But it's not. It's just the moral realm. Yeah, now, it, I mean, something political would be something that's indifferent to morality, you know. So, I don't, I don't know. Off the top of my head, you know, some, 
should the speed limit be 65 or 70 or something like that, right, isn't a moral issue per se, and is certainly one that a pastor should not really engage in discussing, uh, but that is the proper sphere of the city. Yeah, we also talked about how politics is creeping more into the religious realms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. In fact, probably this is going to require us to do a great deal of rethinking. And we're kind of already behind, but that's how it's always been in the church. Satan comes up with the error. The church doesn't recognize the error for some time, and then we kind of scramble to recognize it and go after it. Uh, But that is a lot of what we've just dismissed as political stuff that we don't have to deal with, is in fact that it's very root and essence spiritual. And is going, the heresies of our day haven't even really been named as such or understood as such. We see them as foolish social ideas, uh, Marxist ideas, this kind of thing. But we don't see them yet as what they are, the intrusion of a false religion um, where it was not, or at least if it did exist, was much more subtly extant. But now it's just overtly, broadly challenging and denouncing what we've taken to just what we've taken for granted. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir again, but that a man's a man, a woman's a woman, marriage is between a man and a woman. I mean, these things we would view these as like, well, those are political. Uh, no, they're deeply moral. They're deeply spiritual. They're first article of the creed issues. Uh, okay, yeah. Was there there was another hand? Did did we uh, talk so much you forgot what you were going to say? Maybe so. Okay. All right. So let's uh, pick back up then just where we left off right after that line about being instant in prayer and then the spirit of gentleness. I mean, that's important, okay, but then also capable of severe rebukes. And I would say that's probably where most pastors in our day and age lack, myself included, because it's just so alien to our culture. Here is 2 Timothy 4.1, verses following. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Remember, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, who is a pastor, in regard to his pastoral office. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All right, so there we see precisely those things which Chemnitz is echoing in his text. And one more, because, he, again, it's interesting how dependent he is on, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just dependent he is upon the Old Testament text. It's important to see that the New Testament texts reflect the same. So Titus 2.15 Um, And really the context around it, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I mean, the grace of God appearing is precisely the appearing of Christ Jesus. And he brings salvation for all people, and he does so apart from our works. But there's a training that happens, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all anomias, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, I think those are so helpful because it's right from the source what it is that the pastoral office is to be about. And again, just echoing from last week, you can see that this is quite a bit different than just this very narrow idea of the pastoral office should be killing people with the law and raising them with the gospel, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. We can see how that in and of itself is just far too narrow in scope. Okay, let's finish out this paragraph, and then we'll pause and see if you have any questions or reflections. Chemnitz continues, for through these means, God recalls the erring and raises the fallen. Otherwise, if a pastor neglect this, God will require the blood of lost sheep at his hand. And of course, that's Ezekiel 3.18. Okay, let's pause there. There's the fourth lochi, that a pastor must, again, be a watchman and a barking dog when there's danger. Failure to do so is failure to conduct oneself properly in the office. Good? Any thoughts? Okay. On to the fifth. He ought not give anyone offense by an evil life, but is to be a type and example for the flock of the Lord with a pious and honorable way of life. And again, look at all the references there, but just I'll briefly bring them to mind with the qualifications of the office laid out in uh, in Timothy and Titus. Again, the, the main purpose for those, for those qualifications are twofold. In the first place, that the pastor's own person not be a stumbling block to the word and sacrament ministry that he's conducting. But in the second place, that he can actually be a faithful model and template that people could look at the pastor and say, he practices what he preaches. Now, does that mean a pastor is sinless? Of course not. A pastor has many sins. You'll notice in the liturgy that at the time of confession of sins, the pastor turns his back to you, and he himself is speaking to God. And in that time where, a man, where we all examine ourselves, the pastor is examining his self and confessing his sins to God. Okay? So this isn't at all from a, point, from a point of self-righteousness, and pastors struggle as much as anyone else. We are flesh and blood as well. But... Nonetheless, the qualifications of the, of the office are such that a man must be an ex, able to be an example. Okay, so that's another part of this. And that's kind of, fallen out of, um, kind of fallen out of our understanding. But it's in, it's in the scriptures, and here it's brought forward by Chemnitz. 
Okay, continuing on. For as Augustine says, a wicked pastor only destroys as much by life as he builds up by teaching. If indeed he builds any yeah, if indeed he builds anything who lives wickedly. Because if the pastor is a notoriously wicked man, who's going to listen to him in the first place? So he's not going to build, or even if he does teach rightly, everything he teaches can be undermined by how he actually conducts himself. So you can see that you can see that this is a matter of common sense. He continues, for his teaching is cold, who is not affected by the doctrine that he teaches in place of God, that is in the stead of God, and does not live it. And that may well be, I mean, again, I don't mean this from a position of self-righteousness, but that may well be a lot of what has gone on in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, where our preaching has run cold. So we have men who have been taught their whole lives and who have taught their whole lives that being filled with the Holy Spirit and living a new life is not an essential part of being a Christian. It's not an essential part of being a new creation in Christ. It's optional. If you take it too far, you're subverting justification. So just keep confessing you're a sinner and just and nothing more and nothing less and just keep carrying on. Well, no wonder the preaching grows cold and dull. It's not affecting the man himself who is then going to be the vessel to bring that to you. So I think it would be good for clergy everywhere to continually diagnose ourselves and make sure that our preaching and ministry isn't cold because otherwise we're not going to have anything to give ourselves. Unless we're receiving, that's what I mean. Okay, so that's Augustine. Two church fathers quoted here. And then... uh, Nazianzen, as he's called here, which is Gregory of Nazianzus, and he's a 4th century guy, was accustomed to say, he that teaches well but lives ill takes away with one hand what he gives with the other. Okay, so that's the fifth, and it has to do with the actual uh, life, um, the thoughts, words, and deeds, but especially the words and deeds of the man in the office. Yes, please. Oh, uh, out of commission? Okay. Um, I'll do my best to re-speak your question for the sake of the online audience. So is there anything that we that can be done to fix this? Because, you know, as a pastor, if the pastor is like this, mm. it affects the whole congregation. Absolutely. So, how to Well, I think so, but I think, again, the, the strength, as is always the case, is the strength of God's Word. Put, simply putting forward this kind of teaching that Chemnitz has, that's 500 years old, that the Lutheran tradition has really only lost in the last uh, 50, 70 years or something like that, maybe even less, to simply start reasserting and reteaching that again in the church and to show that this flows directly from God's word. And it's not an option. It's the way it is. It's not legalism. It's, in fact, for the sake of the gospel. 
simply teaching this will over time be enough to correct. Um, and I would say this, enough to correct the thoughts in the minds of the laity, in the minds of the church itself. Thanks for the PTSD there. No, <laughs> Thought that was it. Speaking, <laughs> finally said something. One thing too controversial. Uh, but it will sort of bubble up from the bottom, I do believe this, because that's the way that reform tends to work. And so obviously preachers themselves, uh, pastors themselves, are converted by the word of God. and They begin to teach the people. The people begin to under, understand this. Chances are they already understood this and don't understand why the clergy haven't been saying it the whole time. And there's a kind of healing and a kind of reformation that takes place where, again, we recognize that hey, we want our pastors to actually be pious spiritual leaders and we want what they speak to actually come, obviously from the scriptures, but to flow from the scriptures through a heart that believes the scriptures and is converted by the scriptures and is passionate about the scriptures. Unfortunately, you can see this kind of this perfunctory attitude in, and again, I don't mean to, I don't mean to peck, I don't mean to be, overly judgmental, but one of the things we've suffered from is a side effect of having a really robust doctrine of the word, that the word does everything. But that, but that allows for a lazy pastor to be like, okay, so all I have to do is just mumble through the word and it's going to work like magic and convert my people. And I don't have to put any thought, any effort, any creativity, any passion. And unfortunately, the, the reality is, even though we've kind of been taught that it's impious to think this, we all probably still do. And you go, that man doesn't really believe what he's saying right now. That man has no experience in the things he's teaching right now. Uh, that, that man has a superficial and shallow understanding of this aspect, or maybe all of, the Christian faith. And so, again, I'm trying to put in enough caveats here. We shouldn't be judgmental towards pastors, but sometimes you can't help but see this in the coldness and dryness and with zero affect, uh, the way that they just preach the word and act like that's going to work by magic and everyone's going to believe it, and they don't. So I don't. I, I hope I, you know, spoke to your spoke to your question that the answer is always God's word, and simply setting that forth once more. But this is a problem. Then, of course, that's recognized all the way back in the earliest days of the church. Augustine's quoted. Gregory of Nazianzus is quoted. Um, New Testament. Authors are quoted. Old Testament authors are quoted. So, perpetual problem in the life of God's people. Okay, how about the sixth and final? Chemnitz writes, Since no one is of himself fit and sufficient for so great an arduous office. So, this is 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul himself talks about this. That, And this is, you know, again, this runs through the heart of all of this. I'm not speaking from a point of self-righteousness, neither is Chemnitz, neither are any of the church fathers or biblical authors here quoted. Like it's, We understand that pastors are sinners and that no individual person is of himself sufficient for so great and arduous an office. Likewise, Chemnitz continues, and no one can successfully sow in the church unless divine blessing is added. 1 Corinthians 3. And I think that that's... Um, I planted Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. Chemnitz continues, Therefore, let the minister of the word earnestly and ardently pray 
And in united prayers with the church, diligently commit both himself and his ministry as well as the whole church to God, following the example of Paul in nearly all his epistles. I mean, this too has largely been missing from the ministry, and it's something I'm conscious of and try to be increasingly conscious of. And that is that the, you know, the most important thing we can all do is pray. Because we won't have a single shred of true doctrine unless God grants it. We won't have a single true or meaningful thing to say unless God grants it. And that word, even when rightly proclaimed, won't have a single effect unless God grants it. Um, You know, it has struck me over and over in my ministry and very frequently bubbles up in, in my prayers before the divine service. I've done all this preparation <laughs> and it's utterly worthless unless you bless it, O oh Lord. That's it. I mean, it doesn't matter. I can be 100% convinced. I can have, I can have researched the sermon for 40, 40 hours. I can know it inside and out. I can preach it exactly. I mean, I can go, you know, and this never actually happens, but I can go and score 100 out of 100 on the roadie scale of self-judgment. You know, never happens. But it doesn't mean a darn thing. It won't do a darn thing unless the Lord himself prospers the work of our hands, unless he himself grants that fruit. Uh, Luther's sacristy prayer also has an element of this, that um, if the Lord would see fit to do anything through me, he must grant that. So, again, um, this is just, we're just scratching the surface of how important prayer is from the beginning to the middle to the end of the entire task of the ministry of the word and the receipt of the word. And, um, and then I would, I would also just maybe add in this one point too, that a pastor never conducts his ministry in a vacuum. So it is always in the context of a congregation where the word is dwelling richly. And there's a symbiosis there. So that as the word dwells richly in the people, that gift is given to the pastor. In their speaking, in the speaking of the people, in the uh, catechization and intelligence of the people, in the challenges of the people. I mean, again, I would be a very different pastor today if every class here at Faith was with four people somewhere above the age of 90 who never challenged me on anything, who never asked a question um, that, that made me think, boy, I need to look into that. So there's a, there's a symbiosis here between pastor and congregation. And that's you know, such a thing that we all need to be encouraged to be in the Word and be students of the Word together. And no pastor becomes learned without a congregation that's becoming learned. And likewise, no congregation becomes learned without learned pastors helping them. And so this continual mutual study um, a good pastor is as much a product of the congregations he's, congregation or congregations he's served as anything else. So that's, um, it's, all, it's all things to keep in mind as we think about the, the symbiotic relationship between office of the pastor and congregation, and as we think of the mutual prayers, prayers of the people for the pastor and the pastor for the people, and all of it that God would be fruitful in our midst through his word and sacraments and fruitful to those whom he draws here. Many are called, but few are chosen. It's a reality 
But we pray that as many as possible would be chosen, would be. Okay, so let me just kind of pick back up where we left off. Uh, let's just go, let's see, right after that um, quotation at 1 Samuel twelve twenty three. Chemnitz continues, and let the ministers of the church often and diligently consider all these things that belong to the faithfulness of a true pastor, that with the Holy Spirit of God governing and assisting them, they might try in the ministry to render that faithfulness to God and know that if they do this, their labor, their labor will not be in vain in the Lord." but that they will, by the grace of God, save both themselves and their hearers. Or at least their souls go free. That is to say, even if their hearers won't have it, a pastor can at least save himself, Ezekiel 3.19. But if they be found lazy, and this, these are the pastors, negligent and unfaithful, let them know that they must render account before Christ, the chief of shepherds, on the day of judgment. Okay, so certainly not shying away from difficult teachings. Chemnitz sets before the eyes of the pastors and the eyes of the church um, just what is required and what is necessary and what is needful. Now again, not to lose the forest for the trees, but this is, as our confessions teach, the ministry and office through which God blesses his church with the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments, all for the purpose that we might receive this justification by faith, or by grace through faith, apart from works. So why is he so serious about all of this? Why are there you know, all these threats of judgment? And because what has been given to us by God is such a great and profound gift that if it gets perverted, it's like perverting a stream at the source. Everything downstream is going to be poisoned and tainted. So as strict and as diligent and as prayerful as we possibly may be at the source, that's what's required, that what goes forth be only pure. Okay, let's pause there and see if you have any thoughts before we turn to Uh, the chief parts of heavenly doctrine and of the whole ecclesiastical ministry. Uh, This certainly shines a light on the vocation of being a pastor, but if you could just comment on uh, the way in which a pastor's social life with these restrictions. I mean, if you're rebuking, uh, you know, the parishioners and uh, encouraging them, and you're certainly... uh, I guess I, I would just go with friendship. Mm-hmm. Where, do, where does the pastor's uh, fun and fellowship and friendship come from mm-hmm. with the design uh, as to what we've just read? Yeah, I think that there is, there is a kind of friendship that occurs that's probably deeper than... Uh, hum- okay, so C.S. Lewis puts it this way. So this I'll give you my as quick as I can my brief philosophy of friendship. You have to be friends about something. Usually when you lose track of a friend or a friend falls away in your life, it's like you're, you can no longer be friends about that thing. That's why they, sometimes that thing is just living in close proximity or sometimes that thing is what's going on at church or sometimes it's what's going on at work or maybe it's quilting or football or uh, a, a books. Or, but you have, to be friend, you have to have something to be friends about. Okay. Now when Jesus calls his disciples friends, that thing that they are friends about 
is the word and will of the Father. So in that deeper and profound sense, I have an entire congregation filled with friends. Every one of you is my friend. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay. Now, those earthly relationships um, and earthly friendships uh, in the life of the pastor, they look different. And they look different based on his personality and, and his needs for that kind of earthly, to have something to be friends about. But with parishioners, and I think this might be more to your point, with parishioners, a pastor does well to always be a little bit guarded. And here's why. God can give you earthly friends a dime a dozen. And I know it doesn't feel like that right now because we're such a fragmented culture and loneliness and everything else, okay? But truly speaking, objectively speaking, you can go out and make friends about anything, You can go join a club that you're remotely interested in and find a friend who's interested in photography. You're going to be friends about photography. Um, There are many such ways in which we can go out and find friends and should, should engage and find friends. But the gift of a pastor is so much more rare. It's so much more rare. That as much as you might want to have a personal friendship with your pastor, if that's going to affect or change your ability to have him as your pastor, you don't want it. The greater gift, the, the more rare gift, is to have a pastor. So that's, that is why I think, and this isn't just something I've thought up, I mean, this is the counsel of many pastors over many centuries, is you can't be buddy-buddy with people in your congregation. You can't entrust yourself fully to people in your congregation. That's not your office in their midst. That's not your role in their midst. It's a greater gift for me to be your pastor than for me to be your friend. And frequently those are mutually exclusive. Because if we're friends, then I can, I, I can no longer uh, rebuke you <laughs> severely. Because I'm worried that I'm going to lose you as my friend. And I think, I think in many cases, sometimes, another factor that occurs is in the life of a, of a pastor in a congregation. He opens himself and becomes friends with, personal friends with, certain people in the congregation. And that's a recipe for division. Because whether true or not, the perception is that these are his friends and I'm not. Or these are the people who influence him and these aren't. So that's something I personally have tried to steer away from too. I mean, certain shared interests with people in the congregation, certain, you know, but in terms of like a personal deep friendship, no, on the basis of God's word, that's the deeper friendship anyway. So hopefully that helps. And in some respects, that's, um, there's, a, there's a great deal of camaraderie. I mean, we all joke about this. I mean, every pastor, I think, has this joke, that all my best friends are dead. And that's, you know, because as you read the theologians and saints of old, there truly is a friendship that you're having, a, you're, because your friendship is about theology. And if you don't think you converse with them <laughs> when you're reading and struggling with theology, you most certainly do, you know. And then I think, too, that that's, that's some of the nature and camaraderie of the, uh, that pastors can have one with the other is an understanding of the office. So that, that can be challenging, too, um, because, again, you're hopefully going to be friends about theology, friends about God's word.
Those are my random scattered thoughts. Good question. Thought-provoking question. Okay, anything else? Ready to roll on? All right, so at, uh, you're going to see that we're going to kind of do some strange things here on page 48 and 49. We're going to do a bunch of skipping. But in the first place, you have the chief parts of heavenly doctrine and the whole ecclesiastical ministry. So I love this because it's a beautiful summary. Question 53, which are the chief parts into which the whole doctrine of the divine word or sacred scripture can be divided and summarized. So everything we've just talked about and all of its diversity and multiplicity, how can you summarize it? Here's Kemet's answer. Christ summarizes all heavenly doctrine, uh, or summarized all heavenly doctrine, and then you have, uh, I'm going to give you four different quotations here. Luke 24, 46, and 47. where Jesus said to them, his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So repentance for the forgiveness of sins on account of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, that's the core message. Okay, likewise, Mark 1.15, where Christ says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time over on page 49 talking about repentance and repentance in the wide sense and in the narrow sense. So just hang on if you've got a question there. Chemnitz has anticipated it. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And then, of course, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these are places in which Christ summarizes all heavenly doctrine. Kenneth continues, John the Baptist set forth that sum total in these chief parts. Repent, believe in Christ, and bear fruit worthy of repentance. So you see that threefold part. Repent, believe in Christ, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And there are references given here to um, Showing John the Baptist, that's Matt 3, and then Acts 19 is showing how Paul himself uses the same structure, but more explicitly in the next line, Chemnitz writes, and Paul declares that this is the sum of his whole doctrine. Repentance, again, notice the threefold nature, faith in Christ, and true obedience toward God. I think I have Acts 26.20 ready for you. Paul is speaking to King Agrippa. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's talking about his conversion, where he saw Christ. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing, good de- or performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Okay, and as I mentioned before, I mean, I think in Chemnitz's text, this popped up back on page 43, and again here, this repentance, faith, and new obedience. Repentance, faith in Christ, 
and uh, fruit worthy of repentance, etc. This threefold theme is central for Chemnitz. And it's how he ends this section. So, next paragraph. One may also rightly answer thus. The sum of all scripture consists in the knowledge of God and of his essence and will. But this is the will of God, that we turn from sins, Ezekiel 18.23. And that gives us insight as to how Chemnitz means repentance here in these passages. Namely, that we turn from sins, Ezekiel 18.23. That we believe in Christ, John 6.40. And that we lead a holy life, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Kenneth continues, the sum of Christian doctrine finally is also contained in very simple form in the chief parts of the catechism and consists in the doctrine of the law or decalogue and the doctrine of the gospel. So again, law and gospel. And of course, the six chief parts, just to, I know you all have them memorized already, but the Ten Commandments is the first chief part. The Apostles' Creed is the second chief part. The Our Father is the third chief part. Baptism is the fourth chief part. Confession and absolution is the fifth chief part. And the sixth chief part is the Lord's Supper. So those six chief parts form the catechism. And if you don't have those memorized, uh, the six chief parts, as I've just recited them for you, what a wonderful thing as a first duty to yourself for your Lenten discipline to memorize the six chief parts as they are. And then for the second level of that, it would be to go back and just memorize the commandments. So you can whip those off. The creeds, you can whip that off. The Our Father, you already know. And then maybe just pick one verse out of the baptismal section. There's four. Pick that verse from John 20 out of the confession. And then memorize the words of institution for the six chief part. There you've got the core elements, the core text of the catechism. So I'd bet that would be my challenge number two. See, now you've got homework number one and homework number two. All right. It all boils down, of course, to the law or Decalogue and then the doctrine of the gospel. Now you'll notice at the bottom of page 48 that on the doctrine of God, he's going to refer us, drop down to the bottom, answers and statements to these questions, all in regard to God, are to be sought from the teaching of the catechism and from the commonplaces and examine of uh, D, which either means Domini or Divi, blessed, it's his title, uh, Philip Melanchthon, by the way, whose day is today. It's his feast day today. And... Um, the commonplaces of Philip Melanchthon we've already covered in this very class in an earlier time. So you're aware of those in a general way. So the doctrine of God is thus not treated directly by Chemnitz. But we skip over then to uh, this idea of law and gospel, but specifically looking at the frame of repentance. What do we mean by repentance? And as I mentioned before, there's a wide sense and a narrow sense. And this can be exceedingly helpful Not only as you read scripture, but more as you think about the nature of repentance. So, question 68, in what sense does scripture use the word repentance? Here's the first category. Here and there, it means the whole conversion of man. Now, Luke 13, 3 and 5 is cited here. Let me just read from that section. In Luke, 
There were some present at that very time who told him that Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what does repent mean? Fully be converted, just turn to, turn to Christ. Yeah, that's it. And in fact, no gospel here has been given per se. I mean, just the threat of the law. So repentance here in the mouth of Jesus is to be converted. And he repeats that, so verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there, repent just means the fullness of conversion. So that's why um, this verse is cited here, and there are many other, other citations given, that here and there, the word repentance means the whole conversion of man. After those citations, Kenditz makes one more statement. In this sense, it is taken also in these other passages, Mark 6, Luke 16, Jeremiah 18, and Ezekiel 18. But, and here's the second category, but here and there, it is put only for one or the first part of conversion, namely contrition which is to be greatly terrified by the knowledge of the wrath of God against sins and to be sorry that we have offended God, plus a serious turning away from sin. This meaning applies where together in the same statement or in the context of the presentation, repentance and faith, and here's what he means, repentance or remission of sins, or repentance and remission of sins, sorry, is distinctly mentioned. Okay, so let's get clarification. He cites Mark 1.15, so listen to this. Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So whereas in the first quoted instance, repentance was just be converted, in this instance, in Mark 1, repentance is distinguished from belief in the gospel. See that? So widely speaking, repentance means simply, like repent means be converted. But in some places, repentance is used in a narrow way. And the tell, as Chemnitz is pointing out, is when it's placed next to Faith in Christ or forgiveness of sins. Okay, then what we're going to see is that this kind of repentance really is narrowly defined as contrition, terror and sorrow over sins. Okay, so we're going to see Kenneth spell this out for us, but again, just to kind of bring you back to familiar territory. If the wrath and judgment of God is all that's preached, all that's going to happen, at best, is a man be terrified by it. But is he going to be saved by that? No. 
So he may repent and say, I'm terrified, I'm sorry. He may be cut to the heart and he may even ask, what shall I do? But there's no answer given. The gospel must be brought in at that point and say, as Peter does, be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. Or on account of Christ, these sins of which you are most certainly guilty have been forgiven. Your guilt has been remitted. There is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, and that, properly speaking, creates faith in the heart and salvation. Make sense? So then law affects repentance in the narrow sense, and gospel affects faith in the narrow sense. Uh, Luther is especially technical and helpful on this point in his uh, collection of writings. Uh, Only the Decalogue is eternal. Because there he parses out for us that the work of the law and the contrition or repentance that it creates is the precondition of receiving salvation through the gospel. Okay? Not in some sort of causal sense, like you have to do X and then God will do Y. Not like that at all. But it is as if to say the first thing the Lord does is creates you to be good soil. That's the repentance. Okay? But that good soil is still fruitless in and of itself. The next thing he does is plants the seed, the gospel from which fruitfulness, life, can spring forward, you see. So these two aspects of law and gospel and what their works are. But now where we're talking about the whole conversion of man, um, and then you can, you can see that repent can just be used as convert. And by the way, this is just such a helpful framework to get familiar with and, and remember because the same thing works for the word gospel. And gospel has a wide sense and a narrow sense. Let me reread Mark 1.15, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel, but that gospel has within it Repent and believe. That's the gospel in the broad sense. It includes both law and gospel. So the gospel is just the good message he brings, which has these two parts. Repent, you're a sinner, and be saved in Christ. Okay? So that's the gospel in the wide sense. But if we're going to talk about gospel in the narrow sense, it's something different than the law. It's something different than repentance. It's the free salvation for the sake of Christ. Okay? And that's what creates faith proper. So you can see how gospel, wide, narrow. You can see how repentance, wide, narrow. Really, really helpful frame to keep in mind. Okay, so in the last waning seconds here, let me just take us back to, to Chemnitz for, these, uh, for the conclusion then of this paragraph. So he's just said um, that there's this second category um, where repentance is used only for one or for the first part of conversion, namely contrition. He cites a whole bunch of scriptures. Mark 1.15 is what I've recited to you. And then he concludes in this way. Thus, in common language, to preach repentance is the same as to rebuke sins with threats added of the wrath of God, death, and damnation. But vain logomachias, that's um, uh, 
word wars or fighting, squabbling over the meaning of words, strifes about words, about the word are not to be stirred up, but it should be clearly stated in what sense the word repentance is to be taken in each presentation. And that's the key. So when you're, talk, you know, when you're having some disagreement with some fellow Christian, you want to def- carefully define what you both mean by repentance. All right? And again, this isn't sophistry or you know, uh, scholasticism or you know, people, fiddling around, people with too much ha- time on their hands fiddling around. I mean, these distinctions come right out of the scriptures. That's the point, is as you're reading the scriptures, you see repentance used by Jesus in this broad way and then in this narrow way. You see gospel used in this broad way and in this narrow way. So it comes right from the scriptures. We need to use these and carefully define these so that when we're speaking to other Christians of different traditions, they know what we're saying and we know what they're saying. That way we're not engaged in just a fight over words. Okay, let me close out this paragraph and then we'll be done for today. We'll pick up next week at... Question 69, final paragraph here, under question 68, Chemnitz writes, But what repentance is when it is understood of the whole conversion of man? Likewise, which and how many are the true parts of repentance? And how the papists teach and speak falsely about the parts of repentance is to be sought in the examine of Philip, Melanchthon. So he goes to another source for this technical argument, which, by the way, the formula of Concord also ends up doing a good job with. So uh, incentive to come to the divine service that starts at 7 a.m. if you can get up that early. Uh, We're reading through the formula right now, and um, part of that formula is going to answer these questions if you do have them. All right, so next week then, uh, we'll conclude this section on Wide and narrow repentance. And we're going to go into, this is going to be a really, really incredible and dynamic presentation. We're going to go into the divine law in general. And you're going to see all kinds of contemporary errors made by famous people in our country in regard to Christian morality and what the Bible teaches. You're going to have all of that thoroughly debunked and you're going to be equipped to spank the next person who uh, dares to be so silly and stupid as to entrap you on this point. All right, the Lord be with you.